Don't be wasting any time. I got somewhere to be. Always on the grind. Yeah, you know me. All the crowd will Payback Time is a podcast that dives into the real story behind the person. How did they build their business? What challenges did they overcome? What mistakes did they make? And how did they achieve their goals? The overall objective is to provide you with a roadmap that leads to success. Sean Tepper is your host. Are you ready? It's payback time. Riley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, good to have you here. Excited to hear your story. So, I'll go ahead and hand it off to you. If you could go ahead and give us your career backstory. Sure. Um, I came out of high school thinking I was going to be a professional athlete. So Hmm. essentially went to school for that in a sense of, you know, eventually becoming a head coach. Volleyball was actually my second sport and the one that I was pursuing. I was actually a pretty good soccer player coming out of school and thinking I was going to be a big soccer player. Um, Ended up going straight to the Olympic volleyball teams as my first job. Um, and it, that was actually because I was networking a lot with those coaches while I was in college. I built a website back when there was no software to build websites. So I was like coding a volleyball website. So actually, if you look me up, you'll see it. It usually pops up uh, still Mm-hmm. as my highly searched thing from way long ago. Maybe eventually that'll fade. <laughs> um, did that. But as soon as I got the Olympic teams, I had no idea that being a coach, even at that level, meant that I would be more broke than I was in college. So wow, I was like, this is not going to work for me. I grew up kind of poor as it was. So immediately switched to technology. And um, at that, at my first company, after the Olympic teams, um, that was, uh, them saying, Hey, you want to be in sales? And I'm like, sure. That sounds like a department. I'll go into that one. Like I didn't really think of it as a, a thing I wanted to do, but I ended up being very good at it. Did that for 10 years while I was doing that. I got my MBA at Northwestern Kellogg in Chicago, went into management consulting after that, as many people do after they get that MBA and became still kind of, you know, responsible for revenue in a different way than just selling, uh, you know, building a portfolio, building big teams, mm-hmm. did some more sort of culture and predictive analytics work after that. And my MBA was in marketing. So then brought it all back together where I'm at now for the last few years as a chief revenue officer for Tegrita, which focuses on marketing and technology. And those are kind of my, was my two things over the two prior decades of work. So that's what I do now. And that's how I got here. Gotcha. Okay. Really good experience with, um, with ticker. My business model is we like to pay attention to people. You know, when you analyze a business, the leaders out there that have experience in management consulting or investment banking is, is usually a really, it's kind of like the pressure cooker forces you to be really uh, attuned to revenues and sales and what really moves the needle. Um, so great experience there. I'm curious, what uh, consulting firm did you work for? I work for Gallup, oh, um, which was this outlier at the time. Because, you know, when you're at a place like Northwestern, like Bain and Booz and McKinsey mm-hmm. are there all day long yeah. at the school, hanging out, trying to convince you to take a job, looking mm-hmm. at spreadsheets in a dark room for three years, and then maybe you'll become partner or or they'll put you at one of their clients. And then when you're at their client, they'll hire the consulting for, you know, it's like this sure. sort of rotating door. Uh, and Gallup said, 
oh no, we want you to lead client teams immediately because of your background. So you'd be sort of finding new contracts, architecting the work. So for me, I was like, I'm going to go with this weird, no one even knows these guys do management consulting firm because they want me to lead. And that'll make me happy because I can't just sit in a room and not talk to clients. So mm. that was, that was right. hot there. Right. That's great. So I want to talk about your volleyball background a little bit. I, I also no. enjoy volleyball. I'm not at your level of uh, play, <laughs> I'm sure, but it's still a fun summertime sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, what Olympics did you compete in? So to be really clear, I did play at a high level. I played, uh, I was in the highest division at the U.S. Open in 1996. Got it. So I played against all the Olympians and played mm-hmm against those teams, Canada was, had their team there. And, you know, so I did play at that level, but I'm five eleven, So my chances of making that indoor sure. team were a bit good. And so kind of in my head, I was like, I'm going to go play pro beach. I was actually better at that than I was indoor. Got it. And because of my philosophy that I had all over my website about how to train, how to run a team, mm-hmm. I was actually, before it was a thing, I was kind of virtually coaching other coaches around the world. Uh, just on email, <laughs> uh, very texty driven email. Sure. And, um, so when they brought me there, they were like, we want you to be our sports scientist and kind of run some grassroots things. So I was part of speedo had a, mm-hmm. uh, volleyball tour that was just for under 18. So I was a big part of managing the logistics of that. And then I ran this program called the Nike volley van, where this van drove around the country and just set up free clinics at like boys and girls clubs, YMCA's. And I had a coach that I somehow convinced to just stay in that van for like a month at a time and Mm -hmm. drive all around the country. So uh, that was sort of like that guy um, with the idea that this was great because I was around all these coaches. I was around the national team. I was around all the developing teams that fed into the national team. So eventually I'm going to become a coach as you know, for these guys, right, kind of how I right. thought about it, but you know, it didn't take me but a couple of months to go, Oh man, I'm just going to enjoy volleyball from afar. I don't want any part of this. Cause this looks like college all over again. Sure. Like, like, no, I can, I'll make, I'll make money. And then, and I did play, I kept playing um, amateur level ball for the next probably two or three years after I left. And then I had so many kids at that point. It was just like, or had a couple of kids at that point. And then eventually mm-hmm. I had five. So I was like, nah, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just stop doing that. Sure. I, I swam a little bit in, in college and the majority of my career was pre-college. And it was one of those sports where it, it was great experience, but boy, it was not a lucrative paying job post college. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. So what's interesting. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I was a swimmer too at my okay junior year no my sophomore year i was a breaststroker okay and i didn't make i, I swam one of the fastest 50s <laughs> unfortunately it was a 100 meter you know breast right but <laughs> i swam the one of the fastest 50s in history <laughs> and then lost the whole race and didn't make it to state sure that year but then you know summer comes and mm-hmm. you know and i'm soft uh, gonna be a junior and so you know i got muscles and everything over summer so when I came back at the time, I think the fastest time in Texas high school was like 5,800 breaths. And I swam like a 59 or whoa minute flat with no 
practice, you know, I just came cold in the pool and they were like, holy shit, you know, oh yeah, um, we yeah. want you to uh, double practice now. So we want you to get up at five in the morning or be at oh, practice at five in the morning, yeah. swim for two and a half hours, go to school. Then after school, swim. So they wanted me to be doing 10 to 15,000 meters a day. And I quit like that day. I was like, <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> I was like oh, I'm not going to do that. No, no. with the amount of hours and time you put into it. And, and I only swam one year. I actually had a, a scholarship in, in my day. They only paid tuition. Mm. State school is I, I went to a state school in, in uh, Wisconsin. And in those days, this was like the early 2000s. It was really cheap to go to school. So like a scholarship for a semester was like 2,500. And yeah, I'm killing yeah. I'm killing myself with yardage here. I'm like, there's massive opportunity cost here. Like I could go make four times as much <laughs> and like have time to like do fun stuff. Like, right. You know, right. So you gotta I gotta really love it. Yeah, it, not, it, yeah. You really do. And I imagine going back to volleyball, it's like, you're not putting in the yardage, but the amount of practice you got to put in, you know, even after college, it's got to be pretty strenuous. I imagine. Yeah. I mean, in college it was three, four hours a day. Wow. Um, and I loved it. I mean, mm-hmm. I would have done it for the rest of my life, probably if I could, but you know, I think sometimes those, those sort of post-college revelations of like, mm-hmm. Oh, you know, now I can do anything. Is this what I really want to be doing? Right. And it was like, Oh, like I'll, I'll play, you know, I had a lot of fun, like, you know, winning things and playing against great people. And like yeah. I had a really good couple, two or three years after that, but it just, I don't know. Things just change when you mm-hmm. sort of get out of that sort of like, I'm living in a dorm and I'm, <laughs> eating cafeteria food, you know, once you're kind of out, like, no, I can do anything I want now. Sure. You sort of make different decisions. Yeah, no, that's smart. So, so you, um, after the transition from volleyball, did you go right to get your MBA at Kellogg or did you get into no. sales? No, I did like four or five years. Um, and it was, you know, in sales. And for me, you know, this was like early technology. So this mm-hmm. is a lot of hardware and software. Sure. And then towards the end of that decade of my work there, you know, it was shifting into managed services and consulting. Yeah. And it actually has a lot to do with, to be nerdy for a second, it had a lot to do with the software becoming virtual, which eventually became SaaS. But yes. But at first it was, you know, you were installing things in a local on-premise kind of way. And I, I'm so, it was really lucrative and, um, mm-hmm was really helpful because I, by the time I started my MBA, I had two or three kids. And then by the time I finished my MBA, I had five, you know, wow. and having a job that paid so well in sales was awesome. But at that midpoint, like five years, I got super bored because it just became kind of easy. Like I knew how to find business, close it, yep, keep those relationships. I'm still friends with a bunch of my best clients from way back then. But I was kind of bored. I want to, you know, I was meeting with our CMO all the time. I just wanted to review what she was doing. I was running regression analysis on like what was creating the best salespeople in the business. Sure. And so I was doing all this stuff. So for me, it was like, okay, I'm bored. I got to do something else. And I remember when I, right as I finished my MBA, I was meeting with the CEO and I'm like, can you give me another job? <laughs> like, <laughs> 
I'm like one of your best salespeople out of like a thousand salespeople. You know, I'm a top 10 guy and I'm bored and I have my MBA mm-hmm. from like one of the best schools in the world. Like, didn't there something you want from me? And clearly there wasn't. And uh, so I left, but I was hoping in kind of my best situation, at least I thought, I don't agree with myself now in the future, but, you know, I thought the best situation would be to stay there, become an executive. At, and that was, that company was CDW. Got it. And I just thought, yeah, surely there, I mean, I've been so successful here and now I'm this MBA guy at a school that, you know, is hard to get into. Surely they want to have me do something, but no, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> at the, they didn't care. <laughs> knowing, knowing your age at the time, you were probably in your thirties, right? Yeah. 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 You, you were way too young for executive material. Like you go another 10 to 15 and we'll maybe start talking. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was, you know, yeah. I, it was just a, a weird, um, Mm-hmm. You know, and I and I think it does that to people like um, people in their twenties who go into sales and find a lot of success. I mean, I could just like show you on LinkedIn. I give you like a hundred people and cover their face and their name up and be like, you know, part of that group of. And I was one of them. I make so much money. Clearly, I know a lot, and so you sort of have this bigger head about what you can do and sure. where you belong and. And so I think I was kind of in that mode, especially with the MBA, like, no, 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 you got to make me something and um, mm-hmm, anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and they just, there's just no interest at all. It's kind of fun. Sure. I mean, it's so funny let's, now. <laughs> let's, let's continue down the journey here. What did you, since you, there wasn't room to like really grow at that moment, what did you do next? Um, you know, it was like, a, um, I think a lot of people can relate to you're in kind of an income trap. So you make so much money. What's the other job you're going to have that could pay you that? And right. um, so guess what? Only sales jobs. And so I was like, well, I'm going to do something different. So how about I sell something very complex instead of what I currently sell? So then I started to apply for roles um, in uh, you know more high-end tech consulting and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. In the end, I ended up at Gallup, but yep. I, it was just, okay, give me something really complicated. You know, I'll make up an exact example. Like everybody who runs a data center at some point is going to need your assistance in how to put a new set of servers in and what's the right hard drives and the memory and the software and how do you make sure you get all that right? And what's the best thing at that moment? Like that's not Ultimately, when you figure that out and you've got a good team, you can do that. It's like a really, for me, it was like a brain dead exercise. Like, yeah, I know exactly what to do. And so, you know, I was like, why don't I sell ideas instead? And so, you know, going and and selling to CEOs a lot. So, you know, saying, look, I'm going to do an analysis and okay, now you paid me 50 grand for that. Now look at this. You've got half a billion dollar opportunity on the table. Here's how we're going to work with you strategy and operationally and get you where you can grab that 500 million mm-hmm. that's just waiting for you. So it's like getting people to buy that concept and believe you. So that's what I did, you know, at Gallup and built a pretty big portfolio. And so I was decent at that too. Yep. So that was, that was kind of my thinking, well, if no one's going to hire me for anything else, I'm just going to try to make my job a little harder. Yep. Let's take a quick commercial break. 
Imagine this, you've been putting money away for years, if not decades, with the hopes to retire someday. But at the average rate of 6%, you realize you have to work another 5 to 10 years longer than expected. Not fun. Since the 1980s, more than double the Americans have to work past the age of 65 and well into their 70s until they can retire. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be working into my 70s if I have to. I want to enjoy freedom, the freedom to spend more time with my family, traveling, and picking up new hobbies. In fact, I want to retire early, and I think most of you would agree. The problem is, a 6% return just doesn't cut it. However, did you know a 15% return can nearly cut your retirement timeline in half? But how do you make more than 15% in the market? Introducing Ticker, a platform that helps you find low-risk, high-return stocks. I've been using Ticker the last five years to generate average returns ranging between 15% and 50%. Get started today with a free trial. Visit ticker.pro. I like management consulting because you can dive into various businesses and really deep dive and understand their processes and what really moves the needle from a revenue standpoint, or if you need to tweak the dials to optimize profits. Um, so I, I think your transition there from sales, I would call that more enterprise sales with CDW. Mm-hmm. Um, moving over to management consulting was pretty pretty good move. How long were you at Gallup? Uh, six years. Six years. Okay, good. Good yeah. experience. And, I, and I'll, I'll give you a little secret about management consulting. So something I didn't realize until I was probably a few years into Gallup. So at Gallup, we were so different being that I myself found clients. I pitched them ideas. I then architected the work. Then I signed a contract. Then I staffed the work. And then I managed the work. And then at the same time, I was finding other stuff. Okay, that is not how the other firms work at all. Right, right. They are their former colleagues who now are staffers at big pharma companies or big CPG companies are just hire, just have a retainer. You know, sometimes at the bigger firms, it's like, you know, about a million dollars a month of they just push that money and they do all the like legwork for all the staff. So the staff is like waiting, like, oh, you know, I wish McKenzie would hurry up with that deck. And like, oh, good. I got it. Now I can take that to my meeting. This is my deck. Mm-hmm. And so like they, that, that's management consulting almost totally. For sure. And I was in this whole different, like architecting work, inventing things, and then kind of being responsible for making sure, you know, buck stops with me, making sure it gets signed, staffed, managed. You know, so it's a really different, you know, management consulting in a sense, uh, for the most part, all the firms that you recognize names for Mm -hmm. are people hoping to be staffers at some point. And when they're not, they're just doing work for staffers. So I didn't know (laughs) that. And part of it was being a gal and part of it was talking to people at the consulting firms. But the biggest learning was when I was working or when I was neighbors with people at a big uh, firm, a uh, big pharma, uh, Abbott, AbbVie. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, and listening to them talk about those firms and how, yeah, that's who does all my presentations that I give. That's who does this. So they were like the support team. I didn't know that. I thought it was just all like big ideas and it's not. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't know For that. sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, good experience though. So you were there six years. Sounded like you had a good gig. What did you do after that? Um, so I actually followed um, a colleague to a firm in Milwaukee uh, mm-hmm. called Right Management. It was part of Manpower. Okay. But the idea was I was doing predictive analytics for a client, Harley Davidson. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, hey, why don't you bring that over here and work with some of our clients at Right Management and you know build some. And uh, that did not work out at all. Um, as soon as I got there, it seemed like simultaneously they abandoned the idea, but I was working there. So it just didn't go anywhere. We did, we did some work, but um, it was, it was flat from the get go. And so that was over about 18 months later um, and did some work at a culture consulting firm based in Singapore. That was great for me. I got to manage some staff uh, in overseas. So I learned some of the culture cultures in Singapore, um, Chinese, Indian, Malaysian, like, the mix yep. of those groups and what they expected was very different than my experience, you know, working with Americans. And, uh, and of course, you know, their time zone there is pretty much the opposite. Right. So, you know, I'm only doing calls at 11 PM and at 7 AM and the whole in, rest of the day they're asleep. So that was really interesting for me. Um, but that didn't go great. I'd say it kind of went kind of medium. I did some good things, but in the end, basically what I was doing for, I didn't plan to do for their firm, but what I started to see because they wanted me to grow um, North America was in the U.S. in particular, they didn't want what was working so well in Malaysia, UAE, Dubai, Australia, even like there was certain things those business buyers wanted that were making the firm successful, but in, a, in America, like no, no one wanted that, which was like giant engagements, uh, speaking centric kind of engagements where okay. there was some stuff, but there was a giant $30,000 speech in the middle of it. Um, people in the U S didn't want that. And so I s- switched it right before I left and they agreed with me. till I got the contract and then they shut it down and, and that mm. was it. But I, I basically sold the rights to the content because the content was so good. And I still think it's so good that people just wanted to integrate that into how they their corporate communications, you know, whether it was internal employees or externally, they wanted to use that for education and for, you know, just enablement for, for different functions in the business. And they were willing to pay for it, like an annual fee. Like we just want access to your copyrighted content. And as soon as I offered it, I had like four contracts, like in 30 days of like, yes. And yeah, it wasn't a million dollar engagement, but it was still, you know, sizable. Yep. And they still wanted a little bit of us, you know, come and do a speech and a snap that wasn't the center of it. And they ended up not wanting that. And I looked now, now that is what they're doing. <laughs> so <laughs> they ended up doing it later. But um, to me, still wasn't like super successful. I left that, went to Oracle, hmm. which was more, more because I was trying to become a CRO at a firm like Tegrita, where I'm at now. Yep. And no one would talk to me. It wasn't like I couldn't get the job or something like no one even would talk to me because I wasn't in the industry of MarTech. Right. Um, and even though I had marketing and tech, 
which I think that's how you made MarTech. Um, you know, nobody cared. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I got to Oracle, interview, 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 interview. And so basically Oracle was just a paid me way to get paid while I was interviewing <laughs> and, <laughs> and left there pretty quickly after I sure. got there. So sure. and that's where I've been since then. Got it. So at Oracle, I assume you went into a sales role? Yeah. 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 I knew someone there and I'm like, I think this is the only way and I can clearly close some deals for you. So it'll help your team. Sure. And he was like, sure, man. Cause he worked for me in the past. <laughs> so, um, and oddly that's how it works at Oracle, by the way, for anyone that's listening, you sure. just got to know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Get in right on. Well, good companies, good background. Um, I'd like to learn a little bit about what you're doing at Tegreta, a little bit about that business sure. and what really, really what gets you up in the morning. You're doing something you love now, a chief revenue officer, but you also have a book. So we'll transition to that in a second too. So first let's start with Tegreta. Sure. So Tegreta was born out of a, a marketing automation platform called Eloqua. And okay. Eloqua is a pretty robust marketing automation platform. And there's guys on our team in the firm that have so many years of making that sort of enable whatever business strategy that you have. So it's, it's, uh, it's bigger than just a piece of software. It's like the centerpiece of how you communicate with stakeholders, customers, employees, mm-hmm. investors, partners. And that's how it was when I got here. And then when I was hired, it was, we want you to grow the firm. And we've more than doubled in size since then. Wow. Um, but the idea when I came on board was, some block, you know, I'll use some hilarious uh, overused corporate terms here. I did some blocking and tackling work at first. So, you know, just getting our contracts set up in a better way, you know, so we could run a business uh, instead of just, you know, having money and hoping we get more. Um, And some organizational structure things, you know, how we're set up, how we work, um, put in a our own platform internally. That's like a combination of kind of task management because we're consultants. And so we do a lot of tasks, discrete mm-hmm. tasks, um, with, mixes it with CRM and, you know, invoicing and proposals all in kind of one little thing. So we put that in so we could, we were, I, uh, cause we're so tech technically capable. We had like six, seven platforms. We were like interconnecting to make wow. it work and we were really good at it. Um, <laughs> but we didn't have to do that. So did that, but then, um, then like, okay, we need to start supporting other technology, not just this Eloqua platform, the Eloqua user base is shrinking every single year. Um, they don't, you know, some people haven't even heard of Eloqua because there's zero advertising going on. There's, they don't show up at events, you know, they're just sort of like hanging on. So sure. people like HubSpot, Marketo, Salesforce who advertise like crazy are always taking market share every year um, of those. So I was like, we got to expand. Like we are amazing at that platform, but let's do other things. And so we've been doing that. And then uh, to the book, it kind of, I I was trying to get us to spend our marketing dollars on something other than events. And this was before the pandemic. And because, you know, an event is so expensive and I'm like, we could write a book. And, you know, at the time, our management team is four people now, but at the time it was just me, Brandy and Mike. So just three of us. And um, I said, let's, 
we have this great perspective on how things should be going at our clients. And we have our own experiences, not just at Tegrita, but separately from our other, you know, career experiences. And we were basically at a, we, we would do every quarter, three days in an Airbnb, all three of us to make decisions about the business. So we're, you picture us by a fireplace, literally um, sitting on couches, like Raleigh says, we should write a book. What will we write it about? And talked for hours about, well, here's what our clients should know about what we see. And it was basically how, when we consult, we're consulting with sales and marketing and customer support and, and we, and everyone's doing a couple things, right. And we were like, if everyone did all those things, right, this is how much better it would be. And so it was like taking the best practices from all these clients and saying, if you could just do them all. And basically it was roll every revenue client facing function under one umbrella with one leader called the CRO and the title of the book is CMO to CRO, because in the end it was a bit of a career, you know, that was kind of the attention grabber for readers to want the book would be, if you're a CMO, you're best positioned for this emerging role called the chief revenue officer. Got it. I always looked at the CRO as more of a sales function, not so much marketing, but it does make sense that the CMO would or could transition to that role. Yeah. Yeah. We have the last chapter of the book is all about that. So it kind of works to that end. Mm -hmm. And um, I have an interesting uh, and I would call unique experience at Gallup. I I was part of the science of how do you, how do you pick the right person for the right role? And the science is crazy. And the book uh, all about that science is called The Undoing Project, which I didn't even know was getting made. And I totally stumbled across it. But it's a book about two people that were on the board at Gallup. And I just didn't. And it was the guy who wrote uh, The Big Short and yes. Moneyball. I can't remember his mm-hmm. name right now. Um, but, you know, he had investigated, you know, this guy's background, these guys' backgrounds, because it was about them as friends. And so I, I knew that the CRO role had these certain scientific things about it. So not anyone can be a good CRO. It's kind of this born with talent that you have. And so in that last chapter, it talks about the, you know, kind of what you're getting at. You think of it as like a high sales role, um, mm-hmm. you know, an evolution of that. And yeah, it requires some of that talent of, you know, being wholly responsible for winning big deals and, you know, all that, but it also takes this like technical understanding of how do things actually work? Because 25 years ago, even not even that long ago, but, you know, in the past, you might interact with a business because you're going to buy their software or whatever. And everything you do is very person to person, but we've evolved so much that it's, it's likely that, you know, 80% or 90% of your interactions with a business are all digital. So how could you just separate sales as this, like, you know, the handshakers, but 80, 90% of it is all over here in digital. And yet you're looking to the head of sales to grow the business, you know, right? and you're hoping that they work together, uh, the head of marketing and head of sales, not to mention support and mm-hmm. some other things that clearly affect renewals and sales in general. But so it was, it was this kind of like understanding, like, we got to get there because there's too much digital 
graveyards around or, you know, mm-hmm. companies owning software they don't use or owning five different softwares that all do the same thing, but none of those functions talk to each other, but they're all client facing. And so I, as a client feel that you're disconnected, even though you feel like you're running your function really well as a head of support. Sure. So, you know, that was kind of the culmination of, you know, what we do and what we're trying to do now, which is do a lot more sort of, yeah, I've heard people tell me this, I never use this term, but, oh, so you're doing digital transformation. So maybe a little more of that, you know, kind of high end, um, changing the way people work digitally. But because right. one of the first steps in that book of how you transition to the CRO model is step one, like tech audit, like let's just see what, how clients and prospects interact with you. I want to see that. Yep. And then you line up your organization behind however you decide that's going to start looking. Right on. Who's a good audience for your book? CMOs for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, CEOs as a close second. And then the heads of sales and entrepreneurs that, that aren't stuck in uh, old school. Because uh, there are plenty of heads of sales, certainly in SaaS, um, they talk a good game in public, but in private, they're all about the knocking, you know, walking through walls and don't really care what's going on in marketing. Uh, they wow. pay some lip service in public, but still some of the biggest and most well-known brands. I've talked to some of those heads of sales, even in the past couple of years, and they're still working the same, you know, don't care what marketing's doing. We're going this way. Um, so, but it is also good audience, the heads of sales who are like more evolutionary, like, no, I, we, we need to kind of blend this together and, you know, do more than align, even though that makes a lot of money for alignment consultants, like do a little more than just align, you know, let's change the way we're doing this. No, that's smart. Um, real quick context here on, uh, Tigrida. Um, how big is this business? Uh, we are. 25 employees. Okay. Um, And um, we thought before the pandemic, we might be quite a bit bigger, but we kind of, as you might imagine, paused all that, even though we did actually grow during the pandemic, which was, you know, just amazing and great. Uh, We were a little slower on growth, but hopefully we'll be closer to 50 by this time next year. Nice. Let's take a quick commercial break. Do you feel like stock investing is too confusing, too time-consuming, or too risky? It doesn't have to be. Ticker gives you the power to manage your own investments, reduce risk, and beat the market along the way. If you ever considered investing on your own but don't know where to start, Ticker is your solution. Ticker safely guides you through your investment journey, finding on-sale stocks and showing you why those stocks are on sale, giving you the confidence that you're making a wise investment. I created Ticker because, number one, I wanted to remove emotions from investing. In other words, I wanted a software to make buying and selling decisions for me so I don't have to. And number two, I wanted to save time. Analyzing businesses can take hours, if not days, and I didn't want to invest the time. Again, I wanted a software to do it for me. I've been using Ticker the last five years to generate average returns ranging between 15% and 50% per year. Seeing that I was generating consistent returns multiple years in a row, motivated me to turn this into a software to share with others. If you're interested, you can get started with a free trial. Visit ticker.pro. That's T-Y-K-R.pro. Again, ticker.pro. 
Got it. And this, I look at this more for a second there at the beginning, I, based on the name, I thought this was kind of like an enterprise SaaS of some sort, but this is kind of like a, like a service business, like a consulting business. Like it's consulting. And we've actually uh, early on in my time here at Tegrita, you know, we did uh, investigate, like, could we get credit? Cause we essentially are selling millions of dollars in software. um, And you know, in, in most cases, not getting much credit for it. And um, so there, we've investigated that on multiple occasions and the, some of the hurdles are too high there to make that reasonable or useful. Sure. But yeah, there's, let's just say, you know, I always laugh about this. Like I, I remember I, one of the deals I wrapped up one month at CDW was like $22 million um, all by itself, you know. And just me, um, that was way easier than some of the, <laughs> some of the consulting mm-hmm. contracts that we put together that are like $33,000, you know? So <laughs> right. for, yes. me, for me, I do kind of laugh at the obsession with like, I scaled a business from this to this. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, so, so what? Yeah, some things are expensive. I mean, yes. so I always, but there is an obsession with it for sure. Um, and uh, I think that it's actually kind of, I would say mis- misleading, but that's not where I'm going. It's more like unhealthy way to look at um, business and growth. And I also make fun of people who say scale all the time, um, <laughs> you, you know, cause you're just growing I don't, you know, we don't need to add another word or, or like, it's something different you're doing. Have you ever scaled a business? Like you mean sold stuff? Um, so right. Yeah. And hired people cause you needed them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, the, the business that I'd say Gallup was the hardest business I ever ran for sure. Um, Tegard is a close second, but, um, it's very difficult to sell people ideas, and grow and predictably know when to grow your team. It's very hard relative to like, Hey, buy this $30,000 piece of software, this $500,000 piece of software. That's like slam dunk easiest thing. That's just one of the easiest jobs. Honestly. (laughs) Now it's, it it sounds like, you know, transitioning from straight up sales to more like consulting. It's, it's a lot more stimulating for you. And thanks for giving us your context there. Um, before we jump to the rapid fire round, I always like to get a, a good idea of like a challenge, like a really tough challenge you faced and how did you overcome it? Um, I would say, and you know, if I have any friends that listen to this, they're going to bust out laughing at this, but cause they're going to be like, Raleigh always tells the story. Um, but the, it was Harley Davidson getting Harley mm. Davidson as, as a client was, the biggest challenge I've ever had because essentially um, I don't even quite remember how we decided that Harley Davidson was like on my list of people to try and get them into my portfolio because they were like, I think, I think it was a considered like, don't call them, leave them alone. They're jerks. um, Mm -hmm. And they will never spend money with us. They, we have them quoted an email that they will never ever work with us or whatever. I saw it as a challenge and I was like, okay, well then I'm, I'm going to get them. And I spent probably six months in meetings and phone calls and everything. And finally 
got somebody to buy $50,000 sort of analysis. Once I got that, um, and you have to picture like I am all over the place. You know, I think they in sales now they're calling it multi-threading or something, you know, reach out to like more multiple people, multiple parts. I was all over the place. I had, you know, 10 to 15 contacts at that time, just like trying to get somebody to hire me. And once I got the $50,000, then someone came up to me in the building and said, Hey, can you go talk to this guy? They want to do this big sales manager, all the sales managers at dealerships engagement. And I went in and he had a million and a half dollar budget And within like 15 days, he signed a contract with me for a million and a half. And then when I got that, then it was like full multi-threading. I was rarely anywhere but inside Harley. I was always in the cafeteria. People from different departments would come to my table because I made sure I was the only guy in a suit because Harley's full of people who basically dress as if they're going to go ride. And and I grew them into the biggest consulting client we had. And... That was, it was kind of, <laughs> I guess I would say it was a challenge because everyone told me not to. And for me, it was, well, that sounds like a great client. Because to me, that meant, well, that means if I get them as a client, they're not going to talk to anyone else because everyone else is going to give up. And so I was like, I want that client. I don't want yeah. a client that's really easy to get because they're going to hire other people too. And I'm going to be right. vulnerable. So that was probably the biggest sort of, challenge I had put in front of me in, in terms of commercial opportunity that I ended up like overcoming. That's awesome. What would you say was the one skill or one, one facet of that journey that really, that allowed you to secure that client? Would it say, would you say persistence? Um, I, I have a weird answer. I think it's that I was not afraid to ask really difficult questions to the client. So um, one in particular moment that was, that got me, I think it got me the, this, you know, I had already signed the million and a half, but this was the, actually the one I wanted. I think this one became something like, you know, another 900,000 of work, but they basically were on the phone. I mean, I remember I was on the Metro train coming out of Chicago and, and I was waiting cause we had done this analysis, like, look, you know, you have all this opportunity. And they were like, we would like to do something, but we'd like to do something that's free because we don't like to spend money on things that don't work uh, or that we don't know are going to work. And so can we do like something for free and then see if it works a little bit and then spend a little bit of money and see if that works? We'll kind of ease our way into it. And I said, uh, I mean, I'm on the Metro train, I'm sure annoying people because I'm on the phone. But I'm like, well, okay, so um, just to repeat back to you what you're saying, you're saying you want to see how something's working first and then make a decision about if you want to invest in it. In other words, you just want to look backward. And she's like, yeah. And I said, cool. I go, I'll be there with a contract for you to sign tomorrow if you're in town. And she's like, I just told you I want to do something for free. And I'm like, no, you told me you want to see what would work. And in the last year, you've lost a billion dollars from your total stock price valuation. I go, clearly nothing's working. So sign this contract and then we'll fix it. And they signed it. (laughs) So so it's kind of, and, you know, honestly, I wasn't doing any trickery. I was just being really straight with them. Just saying, you know, 
if this is your philosophy, then don't just apply it in one direction, apply it mm-hmm. in all directions. And so we did some cool Great. stuff with them. I, it was really fun after, after that. And before that, it was always pulling teeth. After that, it was pretty fun. Great advice. I love the fact that you leveraged the thing that's in in the top tier boardrooms is the share price discussion. That just yeah. peppered, peppered that little comment <laughs> right in there. <laughs> I'm looking at your stock price. It looks pretty bad. <laughs> Something's not working. <laughs> nice play. No, that, that's great. Thanks for sharing that story. All right. So what I'd like to do next is dive into the rapid fire round. This is where we could find out who Raleigh really is. All if right. Can, right. Here we go. So if you could answer each question in 15 seconds or less. Ready? Yes. All right. What is your favorite podcast? Oh boy. Um, I would say, cause I do like quite a few of them. I would say um, right now because of the political environment, I actually like Rachel Maddow's and Chris Hayes, uh, the MSNBC guys. I like their podcast. Nice. All right. All right. What is a recent book you read and would recommend? I'm going to stick with the book. I already mentioned the undoing project. So okay. if you want to get a new perspective on how to pick people for particular jobs. That one's a good uh, way to expand your horizons. Nice. Good recommendation. All right. Next one. What is your favorite movie? Hmm. That's a tough one. Um, I guess I'm going to have to stick with Fight Club, which has been at the top of my list for years. I like the uh, Great movie. overall challenge, challenge your, the mindset, you know, yes. Great movie. Yep. Still holds up today. All right. What is your favorite food? Oh, man. Um, it's got to be steak. I'm from Texas, so. There we go. All right. Next question. How many hours do you work per week? That's hard to nail down, but I would say I work between 40 and 50. I don't okay. work overwork. That's healthy. Yeah. Management consulting, your old days, you're probably pushing 60 to 80. <laughs> I was, there was many, you know, there was many, I, I still remember working on in Harley in particular, working on like uh, PowerPoints and proposals late in the evening at a bar, like trying to give myself some kind of enjoyment. Like I'm at least going to have a drink <laughs> while I'm doing this and, and then leaving and being at a 24 hour Kinko's printing it until two in the morning so that I could show up at an 8am meeting so I did that a lot. Yes. And I'm that, glad that's over. <laughs> I've, I've heard the phrase many a times, death by PowerPoint. Yeah. I'm sure you were experiencing that all day. No. Yeah. All right. Next question here. How many hours do you sleep each night? Um, I'd say seven and a half. Nice. Yeah. All right. Good work hours. Good sleep hours. Next question here is kind of related. What is your workout regimen? Um, so I... Uh, Really got into CrossFit in 2011. My background is in exercise, phys, biomechanics, motor learning. So I have like an extensive understanding of why CrossFit worked. Mm -hmm. And I got into it and was coaching and all that, you know, on the evenings and stuff for fun. And um, in 2015, I started to just do my own thing. And I have my gym downstairs in the garage. So I do all my own programming, uh, a lot of free weights, rowing to big for me gymnastics kind of work but i do that every why well, not every day i do that monday tuesday thursday friday okay. uh for about an hour and a half a day 
Nice. I'm a big CrossFit guy too. So do my own programming. I don't go to a, a box or <laughs> gym, yeah. but yeah, love, love my own routine. So, all right. Last question here. If you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit and what would you say? I think I would go to right when I started college and I would just tell myself to slow down. Um, I think in my younger years, I missed a lot of fun because I mean, <laughs> I was so ambitious about everything. Um, you know, I immediately became a secretary of the Southern Intercollegiate Volleyball Association and then the president. And I was, you know, designing our, how, how people, a point system for rankings. And I mean, I was, and then I was, you know, running the, the rec league and I was doing so many things because I was so, I want to lead, I want to lead, I want to lead. And I just wish I would have slowed down a little bit and enjoyed <laughs> people more and, and all that. I, I, I think I probably would have had a better time. That's awesome. Great advice. All right. I'll turn it over to you. Where can people reach you and find your book? Well, there's only one Raleigh Keenan I know of on LinkedIn. So that's a great place to find me. Um, and then also the book uh, to find me in a more professional sort of linked to Tegarda way about how you could hire us or talk to us or whatever is revenuetakeover.com. And that is uh, all about the book and, you know, the personalities behind the book, me being one of the three. Awesome. All right, Raleigh, well, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. Always on the grind. Yeah, you know me. All the crowd will be mine. You can call me king. Hey, I just want to say thanks for checking out this podcast. I know your time is valuable and there's a lot of other podcasts out there you could be listening to. So thanks for taking the time to listen to my guest story. If you did enjoy this podcast episode, could you head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review? That would be much appreciated. Thank you. And last but not least, on this podcast, uh, some episodes we do talk about stocks. And please keep in mind, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. So if you did hear any buy or sell recommendations, please don't make those decisions based solely on what you hear. All right. Thanks a lot. See ya. Don't be wasting any time. I got somewhere to be. Always on the grind. Yeah, you know me. All the crowd will be mine. You can call me king. A matter of time for you all love me. Find me at my prime right where I want to be. I'm one of a kind and no one like me.